0: Welcome to the Kenosha City Church podcast. In this message, learn how to respond to the government while still living a life in obedience to God. Enjoy the message. Well, we are in the study of the book of Romans Empires, Volume 4. And, it, and you know, I know that you can get all of the previous messages online at Kenosha.church or uh, Spotify or whatever you get your podcast or YouTube, wherever, our TV app. But did you know exclusively on Spotify, starting I think a couple weeks ago, uh, we drop a midweek message that is completely bonus uh, content. And so if you want more messages, want to listen to more things on Spotify exclusively, uh, you get a midweek message uh, on a number of different topics, all right? Well, we're going to be in Romans, Romans chapter 13 specifically, and the book of Romans is rich. It's something that you're going to go back to the rest of your life. And as we've been going through chapter by chapter, verse by verse, the book of Romans, chapters 1 through 12 is a beautiful, systematic laydown of the gospel. It is an explanation of how to be in right relationship with God and Others. It is a beautiful statement of it, the clearest statement. It's the reason why we go back to it over and over and over again. But as we transition to chapter 13, Paul begins to talk about specific issues that will hit the church in Rome and specifically us today. And so last week, we picked up with what he teed up with. It is how are we supposed to relate to the government how are we supposed to as a church or as an individual supposed to react to the government this was a good question uh, for paul and the church at large because to be a christian in the roman empire in the first century meant you were doing something illegal so it's something so important to know how are we supposed to respond to a government maybe a government you don't like and maybe a government that doesn't like you in late 2013 Just before the first Russian invasion of Ukraine, before they took Crimea, uh, Alice and I were in Kiev, uh, and uh, we took a train from Kiev uh, all the way to Moscow. This is a train you can't take any longer, and if you could, I wouldn't recommend it because it's a war zone. Uh, Why were we uh, taking a train from Kiev to Moscow? Uh, Well, I would just... Completed a missions trip in London, Allison flew over, I met some mission partners in different countries for future partnerships, and then we were going to end in Moscow, of which I had a friend who turned out to be the assistant to the ambassador, different story, All right? didn't know that, but uh, anyway. As I took a train ride uh, from Kiev to Moscow, uh, it, it, was, it was interesting. You could tell that you were leaving a world of what you knew. Uh, When we got to Moscow, of course, I went to the Red Square, visited the famous Red Square. This is famous for uh, St. Basil's uh, Cathedral and also the Kremlin, which is the office of Vladimir Putin. Uh, The Red Square, this particular weekend, was hosting what's called a military parade or what they call as a military tattoo. So all these military marching bands, all from Eastern Europe and Russia, were going to show off their marching band capabilities. I was in a marching band in high school and I thought, well, this is kind of interesting and kind of unique and kind of cool. It's like, I, I kind of want to buy a ticket and watch it. And Allison's like, I have no interest in that. It's like, I'll go back to the hotel with the group. I was like, okay, go back to the hotel with the group and I'll watch the marching bands. So I bought a ticket in the red square, makeshift stands to watch all these militaries play their military songs. And as I entered in this makeshift stadium in the red square, upon entry, they handed you a Russian flag. And I thought, what did I get myself into? And as I sat down in the stands, there was literally a a, a steward, or better yet, a cheerleader that was standing there, and they told you when to wave the flag, when to clap, when to cheer, and I had no clue what they were saying because it was all in Russian. So I decided right off the bat, I maybe Allison was right going back. I think I'm in the biggest Russian propaganda thing that's happening this weekend in the country of Russia. And I'm probably the only American here. And so when they waved their flags and they stood up and cheered and did different things, I sat down. I sat down and I didn't do anything. Why? Uh, Because here's the deal. Is that everybody was unified in that moment. They were unified. It looked, the unity looked kind of neat. But what were they unified to? Well, they were unified to the Russian ideology. They were unified to Vladimir Putin. People were wearing Vladimir Putin gear. Uh, they had stores right outside where you can buy all the Vladimir Putin gear. They were unified to the ideology. And that's why I sat, and it was weird. Everybody waving the Russian flags, and I sat as an American amongst, I, I thought, maybe I'm not gonna make it out of here. I went back to the hotel and I said, Allison, I, and I explained everything I just explained to you. And I said, I hate to say it, be careful what you say, our rooms are probably bugged. Unity. It's important, but what's just as important as unity is what you're unifying to. Paul wrote the letter to the Roman church to unify them, not to the Roman Empire. He didn't unify them to something that was trivial. He wrote the letter to the Roman church to unify them to the gospel of Jesus Christ. So what is biblical unity? Oh, unity is such a, a buzzword today. It's, it's, a, it's something that say, like, oh, we need to be unified, 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 whether it be in politics or whether it be in the church. And we're like, yes, we need to be unified. And when you get to the meeting, you realize, I don't know if I wanna be unified to that. What is biblical unity? Jesus prayed in his high priestly prayer in John 17. He said, may they all be one as you, Father, are in me, and I am in you. Paul, likewise, to the early church in his letters, pleaded with the church to stay unified to the gospel. Paul told the church of Corinth specifically, he said, for I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. It is human nature for us to stray from the gospel and make it about us or make it about something else that we want. It is human nature, and it's the devil's desire to divide, distract, and devoid a church of the gospel of Jesus Christ. There's nothing more than the enemy wants right now is to take our focus off the gospel and put it on anything else. And the enemy goes, oh, please, please, be do-gooders in your community. Just don't mention the gospel. That's The enemy's okay with that. He would call a truce with us right now if we did that. In the Roman church, it was divided. The division were between those of, that were once of the Jewish faith that had come into placing their faith and trust in Jesus. And then there was another faction, there was the pagans. These are the people that were pagans. They, they didn't have a faith in God, they had faith in idols, but then they came into a relationship with Jesus. And the faction was this, is the Jewish believers, some of them anyway, they wanted to put on the, the former pagans, the Gentiles, all the Jewish traditions. And they wanted to put on uh, just different understandings that maybe they had as, as, as Jewish followers. And Paul saw this as a distraction from the gospel. Paul saw this as what we would call today as legalism. Somehow we are going to do certain things or we're going to emphasize certain minor things, or we're going to make them major, not only to give us ourselves attention, but to somehow show that, "We're better with you, God." No, he says, that's junk. It's legalism. We're saved by faith through grace right and grace alone and and the only reason why we do good is because we realize how awesome God is so Paul wrote to correct this error and to get everyone on the gospel mission so as Rome could be a mission hub as Paul looked to the westward expansion when you read the writings of Paul when you see in the book of Acts Paul wanted to get to Spain Now, in the Roman Empire, as I mentioned last week, and I won't go through this all again, I really encourage you to listen to last week's message. Uh, The Roman Empire, it was illegal to be a Christian. In fact, by 325, when Christianity was legalized by Constantine, two million Christians were slaughtered for their faith. It was of of the utmost importance, therefore, that the church was to stay unified on the gospel if they were going to stand against the pressures of culture. That statement's true today, isn't it? It's so vitally important that we as Kenosha City Church that we stay unified on the gospel of Jesus Christ if we're to stand under the pressures of which we are facing as a culture today. The early church could not afford to be divided from the gospel, focusing on minor things or bad doctrine or personalities, and neither can we do that. When people talk about unity today, If it doesn't start and end with the gospel, it's not biblical unity, period. It doesn't matter how spiritual or biblical it sounds, it's unbiblical. Too often people are talking about unity, they're talking about uniformity. They want everyone to look and act and respond the same way. They'll often emphasize minor doctrines at the expense of major doctrines, and they will peddle fringe ideas and attempt to one-up other Christians as if they have some kind of secret understanding that nobody else has. Paul faced this uh, later on, even the early church in uh, the first and second centuries. They faced this with a group called the Gnostics. They claimed to have some kind of hidden knowledge that nobody else had, and they ended up fringe and absolutely occult. Paul was pulling together the church in Rome to be unified with the same conviction with the good news of Jesus Christ. And this was extremely, extremely important if they're gonna face the hostile Roman government. Here's our main idea this morning. It jumps off of our main idea last week. It is this, you are not the final authority. God is your final authority. You are not the final authority. That was last week's, let's add to that. God is your final authority, period. We like to think we're in charge. We like to think that we can make God whatever we want to make God to be. We think that we can emphasize whatever we want to emphasize in Scripture at the expense of other things. That's not obedience. If if you want to do one thing in the Bible at the expense of doing another thing in the Bible, that's not obedience. It's just selective obedience. We think we can be the boss, but we are no final authority. So who is? What we'll see today is that God is your final authority and every other authority you may have will answer to him whether they know it or not. He created governments to reflect, not create his standard. And as we live in a fallen world, uh, there's not one government on the planet that is perfect or capable of being perfect or bringing utopia. Therefore, it may be logical for the follower of Christ to say, I don't need to obey government. Well, if anybody would say that, I think it'd be the first century Christians, right? The first 300 years of Christianity, two million Christians died just simply for being followers of Christ. If anybody said, I'm not going to follow the government, it would be them. But when we look through the pages of Scripture, that is not what Paul says. Paul says in Romans chapter 13, if you want to turn there right now, Romans 13, verse 1, he says this. Let everyone submit to the governing authorities. Since there is no authority except from God and the authorities that exist are instituted by God. So then the one who resists the authority is opposing God's command and those who oppose it will bring judgment on themselves. So rulers are not a terror to good conduct, but to bad. Do you want to be unafraid for the one in authority? Do what is good and you'll have its approval for it is God's servant for your good. But if you do wrong, be afraid because it does not carry the sword for no reason for it is God's servant, an avenger that brings wrath on the one who does wrong. God was the first Avenger for you Marvel people, all right? You're not the final authority. God is your final authority. So last week, we teed up this conversation about the government with this question. Last week's question was this. What is the role of government towards you? We're not gonna rehash this, but I'll give you the the points. Uh, What was the role of government towards you? It was to, number one, protect life. Number two, to uphold the law. And number three, to give freedom to worship. And so what we have is we have two spheres. We have the government and we have the kingdom of God, which is expressed in the, in the church, right? And so the government does government things. They, they plow your snow. They, they, they turn the electricity back on during an ice storm last week, right? The church, uh, they, they glorify God. They meet together to, to worship and praise God and learn from his word and to advance the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's the mission. And sometimes there's overlap because we live in this country, or if you're watching online and and you live in your particular country, uh, there is some overlap, but let let us understand this, is that the government is not the church. the government is not to to invade or intrude into the everyday operations uh, uh, and everyday theology of of the church. Some of you are like, well, wait a minute, that, that sounds like an American thing. It's like, no, even in Rome, you don't read in the book of Acts saying, and Paul asked Caesar his opinion on this doctrine, never. And so we have the sphere of the government, we have the sphere of the church, and we must not mix up the two. And unfortunately, especially in progressive Christianity, uh, that they, they move the sphere of the church uh, under the sphere of the government, and the church begins to reflect government. This week we're going to unpack two further questions. So what was the role of the government towards you? You can go back next, last week if you need a rehash of that. But our, two que- our, our questions this week is this. What is, your, what is your response to the government? Talk about the government's response to you last week. Now, what is your response to the government? When is it right to disobey the government? And how can you be a good neighbor or citizen in society? You're not the final authority. God is the final authority. So what is your role in the response to the government? What is your role in the response of government? First thing is this, willful submission. Romans chapter 13, verse 1. Let everyone be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except the which God has established. The authorities that exist have been established by God. Consequently, whoever rebels against the authorities, rebelling against what God has instituted for those who do do so will bring judgment on themselves. A few years back, I was able to visit an underground church in an undisclosed country. Um, These missionaries were very careful to respect the rules of the land. uh, And there was a very strict country. And so as Christians, they wanted to make sure that they were seen as Uh, upstanding citizens why because every Sunday they did something illegal every Sunday they met together as a church Uh, when they worshiped they whispered over an iPhone I remember visiting them we went to pray in their courtyard and I started praying too loud and he shushed me saying we don't want to be kidnapped and so it's what I learned from that is this is the missionary submitted to the general laws of the land so that he could preach the gospel to a country that only had 50 Christians Paul wrote that we need to be in willful submission knowing his fate was going to be that he was going to die in the empire. In fact, we know this, that Nero beheaded Paul uh, after the persecution arose uh, after the great fire in Rome. So Paul writing, knowing that his destiny most likely was going to be death for the gospel said, we need to submit to the governing authorities. Why? Because if you are in a rebellious nature on everything, you're not going to have the opportunity to give the gospel to anybody. Notice verse one, let everyone be subject to the governing authorities. Everyone means everyone. Now, how many times do you read scripture and you read everyone? You're like, yeah, everyone, except me, (laughs) right? (laughs) I admit, I've done it before. It's like, yeah, I don't know. I mean, there's a little asterisk here, like, Andy, this doesn't apply to you. It applies to me. Everyone means everyone. No asterisk. It means if you're having a beating heart, and you're alive you must submit to the authorities that are over you whether it be a boss the police that are pulling you over right, a judge or a government I know what you're thinking already is there a time not to obey yes and we will get to that in just a moment it's funny whenever we go to these passages you're like submit to the governing authorities and the first thing I think of alright but let's talk about when we don't have to do it right Well, let's talk about the heart of the issue before we get to the exception, okay? Just because there's not perfection in our authority doesn't mean you bypass all authority. We live in a society today where we immediately look for the flaws so that we have an out clause of how we can act however we want to act in whatever situation we're in. Does that make sense? Whether you're a boss, you may experience that. Whether you you, um, are any any sort of manager or whatever, today we live in a culture where it's almost applauded if you're rebelling. And that's what Paul is saying not to do. You must be under subjection. Subject yourselves. Be subject to the governing authorities. This word in the original is a word that's typically meant for the military. Uh, it, It means that we willfully obey the rules that don't go against the conviction of the Bible. So whether it be your boss's task list, oh my boss, he's so mean. He, is the task list mean, right? <laughs> it, it, it's, it, I don't like the speed limit. I don't either, right? I wish we had auto bonds, right? But guess what? I'm not the one making the rules. So when I get pulled over, guess what I have to do? I have to pay the ticket, right? I remember one time, oh boy, here's bonus. I remember one time I was in Texas. I was losing track of what I was doing. I was talking to people, and I was going like 86 into 75. And I thought, you know what? I'm gonna tell this officer that I'm a pastor going to a pastor's conference. Big problem, he said, you should know better because you're a pastor, and he wrote the full limit of the ticket, all right? <laughs> we need to obey the rules, speed limit, paying your taxes. We see in verse two, Paul speaks as the authority is not just some authority that's been made up. It's been allowed by God and his sovereignty. Paul has in view a government that's providing order in a society. And if a government's ideal, the reason why God allows a government is to bring order. Christians, followers of Christ, listen right now. We are not to be people that bring disorder into society, Period. We are to be citizens of the kingdom that live in a world that is not our home. We never see Paul uh, write scripture and say, oh, woe is me. I'm a Christian and my rights are being trampled on. Oh, church, we should just really scream to Caesar and let him know you're mean. Right? Do we ever see him do that? Never. Right? Never. Never. Paul never takes the victim card because he doesn't have certain rights. We never see Paul organize a protest for Christian rights or disobey laws to get attention to his flight. No, rather, Paul protests through prayer. Paul protests by by saying we need to be filled with the Holy Spirit and show people what the kingdom life is like. He went to the king of kings, and therefore he preached in the marketplace. He spoke to people in their homes. Paul did not go for some so-called structure of power. No, rather he spoke to the gospel in power and he went for people's hearts because the gospel changes everything. Romans 1.16, for I'm not ashamed of the gospel because the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, first to the Jew, then also the Greek, for in the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith, just as it's written, the righteous will live by faith. The early church was so unconcerned about what was happening in Rome. Check this out. This is what historians wrote wrote about the Christians, first generation Christians in Rome. you got to remember, if you're going to be a who's who in Rome, that meant you went to, um, well, the Colosseum. Watch people die for entertainment, right? Uh, that meant that you did salacious things, maybe with prostitutes. Uh, th- that meant uh, that you would go to different events that were based on paganism. And so if you wanted to really socialize and, and, and be the who's who in Rome, uh, that's what you had to do. And first century Christians like, there's no way we're doing that. And so literally when Christians would go into the market, people were like, who's that? When did they move to town? They've lived here for 15 years, Right? How do you not know who they are? Because Christians are so heavenly minded. They wanted nothing to do with something that was even evil. They they wanted to, they showed a different ethic. A different empire was running their heart. It was King Jesus. I think this is a place where Christians can get, uh, we can learn something. We can learn something from the first uh, century Christians. Now, I think there's a place for Christians to get involved with society and politics and in the workplace. But today, the way that we are getting involved might not be helpful. Today, the way that we are getting involved, uh, we might be using worldly methods, the worldly methods of cancel culture, or gossip or slander or elitism are often the weapons the enemy uses to try to win an argument. Not so with us. We want to make sure that when we are connecting with society, we do so in a spirit filled by the spirit, not with a spirit of rebellion, but one of patient endurance, a prayerful spirit of remembering the mission that has been entrusted with us, the gospel of Jesus Christ. Paul wrote to the Corinthians, he said this in 2 Corinthians 10.3. He said, for although we live in the flesh, we do not wage war according to the flesh, since the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but are powerful through God for the demolition of strongholds. We demolish arguments and every proud thing that is raised up against the knowledge of God, and we take every thought captive to obey Christ. We do not demolish strongholds by the weapons of this world. We demolish strongholds first and foremost by the gospel of Jesus Christ. We demolish strongholds by getting on our knees and praying to the Lord God Almighty. We demolish strongholds by being filled with the Holy Spirit and moving in ways that we couldn't do in the natural. We don't live in the natural. We engage with this cultural in the supernatural. We must. Bottom line, we are to be kingdom-minded that our fight is against the strongholds first and foremost, the enemy of our souls, Satan. And we defeat the enemy by the gospel of Jesus Christ. If the gospel is preached, Satan loses. If somebody responds to the gospel and says, I want to give my life to Jesus, Satan loses. When we say no to the culture, when they're saying stop, you can't do that, you're you're being too bold, and you say no, I'm going to represent the love of Christ, I'm going to be relentless and relational with Christ, Satan loses. When we go upstream and not downstream with the culture, Satan loses. Well, I want you to know it is not about the strongholds that we can't break, it's strongholds watch God break and he breaks it when we don't resort to the ways of the world he breaks it when we get on our knees and say God I can't do it and I need you to do it through me so much of our societal ill would be solved if we are gospel first people government programs good thoughts positive vibes Even being rebellious is not gonna set the table for what actually fixes things. The Lord God Almighty is, Jesus. Governments don't save people. Jesus saves people. And the church's purpose is to proclaim out loud with words the life-giving message of Jesus Christ. So our response to the government is this, willful submission and the everyday things. Secondly, our responsibility is this, Honor. Romans 13 verse 5. Therefore it is necessary to submit to the authorities not only because of the possible possible punishment but also a matter of conscience. This is why you pay taxes. For the authority are God's servants who give their full time to governing. Give to everyone what you owe them. If you owe taxes, pay taxes. If revenue, then revenue. If respect, then respect. If honor, then honor. Notice verse 7. We are to respect... And honor those in positions of authority. Notice who Paul is speaking about. Oh, this is a tough one. He's speaking of what we need to give respect and honor to. And it's the least like division of our government. He just mentioned tax collectors. And we need to give them honor and respect. Are you kidding me? The IRS? This is fitting because we're in the middle of tax season. we often conflate the idea that respect is something we give to someone who deserves it not so whether they deserve it or they don't deserve it we respect for the position that they are in i heard it said it this way is that respect is not earned it's given and trust is earned and not given does that make sense we often mix that up. We, we often think that, okay, just like trust is earned, so is respect. No, not so. In our culture today, uh, we want to only give selective the people the respect we want to give them, usually people that we agree with or will do our bidding. Listen, we need to respect anybody who's made in the image of God, and especially those that are in authority. Why? Because it says respect. It actually comes from the Greek word. It's called phobos. It's where we get the word phobia, fear, Right? There's a reason why you should fear the IRS. Anybody get a letter like, ooh, a letter from them, an audit, whoa! Right, you're like, ah, oh, man, life's over for the next four weeks, all right? <laughs> you don't have to like something to respect something. As a follower of Christ, we don't want to just respect someone to advert punishment. We want to live out a spirit of grace and mercy and love. And this leads us to honor. This means that we look to the person in authority with a general sense of respect for their position and honor as a human being, no matter how wrong or right they may be. Now wait. If those in the early church weren't involved in the empire, if we're to honor and respect even the tax collectors, are you saying we should not be involved with politics, just watch it go by and we do our merry thing? and not be involved with the issues of society and our government. That can't be further from the truth. I would say the opposite. We need to be followers of Christ, active in society, but we just need to remember the pecking order. We are followers of Christ and the citizens of the kingdom first. We have a mission with the gospel of Jesus Christ, and the outflow of those truths will be a worldview of which we see the world differently. And it's in that world that we see differently from the Bible, is the truth of which we want to lead the people into. If we disagree with someone's ideas, we don't rip them apart, we don't slander them, we don't spread rumors. We don't go on Telegram or or, or Twitter and make stuff up. How you treat people in society will end up, eventually, how you end up treating people in the church. There's a reason why so many churches in the West right now resemble more the House of Representatives than the House of the Lord. Thirdly, so we're to honor. Thirdly, our role in response to the government is we need to get involved Jesus said this in Matthew 5 13. You are the salt of the earth, but the salt should lose its taste. How could it be made salty? It's no longer good for anything but to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. You are the light of the world. A city situated on a hill cannot be hidden. Jesus calls the followers of Christ salt of the earth. Salt it was very valuable and it continues to be very useful in our world today. Salt represents the purity of one's heart. Uh, salt uh, represents the flavor uh, uh, of the gospel, which brings life. Salt heals wounds, right? Salt leaves you thirsty, wanting more. Well, we are to be people that bring the life giving message of the gospel where people are wanting more Jesus. That's what Jesus is saying. And we're to be a light. That is it hidden? Hidden under a bushel? No, right? This little light of mine, right? Little kid, you didn't realize Jesus is saying, I want you to be a heavenly influence in your surroundings. A city situated on a hill could not be hidden. Kenosha City Church, we are to never be hidden, right? Uh, I think city is really important here. Uh, A light on a city on a hill should never be hidden. Listen, Kenosha City Church, we should never be hidden. We are smack dab in the middle of the city, which means this, we must first and foremost be the followers of God, Jesus Christ our Lord. Secondly, we must be people with a mission that advance the gospel in every area of our lives. And third, we must be for the good of our city. Kenosha City Church, man, we would never be hidden. The gospel must be our core. And God will call us all to be influencers in different ways. And this is where we get mixed up sometimes. Sometimes God lays a burden on your heart and you want to influence in a particular way. And you're like, why doesn't everybody have this burden? Because God gave that burden to you. And how beautiful it is in a church of hundreds. That God gives hundreds of burdens to all of us to be a good for our city. And there's some of these things that we'll do together as a church, but the thing that we can never not stop doing together as a church is the gospel of Jesus Christ. Too busy, we're hacking at the symptoms when we need to go for the heart. So how are we to get involved in our government? Number one is pray. Pray. First Timothy Verse 1, for all, first of all, I urge that petitions and prayers and intercessions and thanksgivings be made for everyone, for kings and all those who are in authority, so that we may lead a tranquil and quiet life in all godliness and dignity. This is good, and it pleases God, our Savior, who wants everyone to be saved and come to a knowledge of truth. Paul is telling <clears throat> Timothy to pray for our leaders do you think Paul liked his leaders? You know, <clears throat> I've, heard, I've seen bumper stickers, you know, it's like, ah, oh, he's not my president. Whenever someone gets, you know, the president changes, not my president. I mean, he would be like, he's not my Nero, right? <laughs> and so it's, it's funny, like, like, Paul would not like his leaders over him in Rome. And yet he's telling his apprentice, Timothy, pray for them, pray for them. Why? Because his end goal was not for the right emperor but that people would come to know Christ and the knowledge of truth. truth. The best way to change a nation is to pray for our nation. We need to get on our knees for our nation. We need to pray for our leaders, pray for revival. And some of the things they spout off sometimes are just straight up evil. And instead of wanting to throw our TV and stomp on it in the middle of the living room, we need to pray in the middle of our living room for the leaders that are espousing those things. The best way to change a nation is to pray for a nation. The best way to pray for your job is to pray for your boss. The best way to pray for the situation and someone that's just driving you absolutely nuts is pray for them. The best way for a marriage that's broken is pray for your spouse, pray for your marriage. The best way to pray for anything is that thing that's bugging you, eating you alive, that's that's taking your head space, living rent free, where you can't even pray to God because you're thinking of that other thing. I want you to know, start praying about it. Because what you pray about is a reflection of what you believe about God. Ooh. Uh-oh. Man, let's pray that God moves mountains, right? Pray. Second way to get involved is influence. One of the greatest buzz phrases that uh, and lies, I would say it's being told Christians right now. I've only heard this said to Christians. Maybe it's said to other people too, I don't know. But you cannot legislate morality. I mean, you've heard that. You can't legislate morality, and I'm like, huh? What do you mean by that? What, what, what they're saying is this: is that, hey, I know you have convictions. I know some of them come from the Bible, but you've got to lay this. You got to set this one out, right? Because that's not what the world believes. They, what does the world believe? Well, there's all these different beliefs. Okay, then, who says what's right? Then, right? I mean, if if we really hook, line, and sinker say, you cannot legislate your morality, what's that mean for any ethic we see in Scripture when it comes to society? It means we're gonna sit it out. I think it's a great lie. You can't legislate your morality. Are you serious? If we weren't to legislate our morality, then murder would be legal. If you don't legislate morality, then stealing would be legal. If you don't legislate morality, then you could bear false witness all that you want. And we already do that in society, but I'm talking about in court. Take abortion, for instance. I know this is a hot topic. We're getting ads, right and left, because we're Wisconsin. One of the biggest elections is going to take place in April with the Supreme Court. Because how that Supreme Court lands, abortion will either be legalized in Wisconsin or it'll stay illegal. Now, I want you to know this right now. I will never, I said this last week, I will never, in any, well, I'd say in 99.9% circumstances, would never endorse a president from this stage. Haven't, and now I don't foresee myself ever doing that. I I don't believe that politics is our answer. But unfortunately, politicians take issues that uh, happen to be biblical at times and make it part of their platform, or they make it against their platform. Abortion is one of those things. I know that we're all over in this room, maybe on this issue, but I want you to know that the Bible stands opposed to the taking of life. Unborn, voiceless life. We're told in scripture uh, that upon conception that we are beautifully and wonderfully and fearfully made woven together in our mother's womb. If we believe in an almighty God uh, who is who is completely in control, we know that not one person's an accident. If you think someone's an accident, then I can't tell you today that you're not an accident. But I'm gonna let you know this right now, nobody's an accident in here because almighty God brought you into this planet for his purposes, his plans, and it's amazing. That's the same for the per- for the. For those that have been conceived in the womb, that is the same for you sitting in the seat right now. It's not a political issue, but it's been made a political issue. And shame on everybody for making it a political issue because we should all see it for what it really is. The least of these don't have a voice. Now, I want to say this. I know in this room in this size, there may be some who have had an abortion. You've encouraged your significant other to have an abortion, and they had it. That is not an unforgivable sin. Jesus can forgive you. And if you ask his forgiveness, he doesn't remember it any longer. It's tossed to the bottom of the sea. There's forgiveness in that. And we need to be compassionate for those that are abortionally minded right now. We need to be compassionate for those that are in situations that they don't know what to do. And our voice is always this, life-giving. Life-giving. Choose life. Choose life. Now, When someone says that we are not to legislate morality, they often point to things like abortion or drugs or euthanasia, but the Bible's very clear. We're to be sober-minded. The Bible's very clear that we're to choose life. And so it is not a political stance to say this is what the Bible says. That's just being biblical. And what we say and how we view and how we need to desire our society uh, to be made up is that the truth of God is, is being lifted high that the truth of God is being instilled. So we don't want to tie ourselves to a political ideology or some critical theory. We want to let the Bible guide all of our worldviews, how we see the world. Now, let me tell you something we can't legislate. Salvation. We can't legislate salvation. Uh, salvation uh, is something that, uh, that is, is personal Salvation is something that you have to personally place your faith and trust in. Some countries, especially in the Middle East, they legislate salvation. If you don't convert to that religion, whether it be Islam or there's some other religions in the world that do that, uh, you may face prison time or death. Uh, that is, it, someone could just say, yeah, I, I, I'm converting. Is that a real conversion? No. It's self-preservation. Uh, we realize that people are going to say no to God. And I want you to know we live in a country that I think is getting it right, where there's freedom for people to pursue God or not. It is my heart that everybody is saved, but not everybody will be saved. We're told by Jesus himself is that wide is the road uh, and many people are on it that's leading to destruction. And we realize that many people will deny Jesus and we will live in a society where many people will deny Jesus. And we realize that they're gonna live by a whole new ethic because they're not living by the worldview of being a follower of Christ. We realize that. And so we can't legislate salvation, but we should not legislate hindrance to the church of preaching salvation and, and, and sharing Christ. Wayne Grudem says it this way. He says, it's impossible to enforce right moral standards on a population when those standards are more strict than scripture. If Jesus, if a person doesn't have a, a uh, relationship with Jesus, they will have a different way that they see the world. A different world will that they will approach issues that at many times will be diametrically opposed to us and how you might uh, view as a follower of Christ. That is why we don't want to spend all of our time convincing a person of unbiblical symptoms of an unbiblical worldview. We want to go for the heart of it, and that's the gospel, the gospel of Jesus Christ. That is why sometimes political conversations can be completely fruitless, because what they really need to hear is the love of Jesus Christ. Uh, Seek first the kingdom of God, and everything else will be added to you, this included Oftentimes we're hacking away at symptoms and we burn ourselves out and then we're going to stand before God and say, how many times did you share the gospel? I gave you many opportunities of people that didn't know me. And you're going to be like, oh, well, I had a good number of political conversations. He's going to be like, well, I understand what you're going at, but you weren't going for the heart. Now, again, political conversations, I'm not saying you can't have them, but make sure it's never devoid from Jesus. Does that make sense? We've seen throughout history, Christians have had great influence on culture and society. According to Wayne Grudem, the spread of Christianity and its legalization after Constantine led to Christian influence on the government, which, which, was, which was responsible for the outlaw of infanticide and abortion in the empire in 374 AD. Uh, Christians helped abolished the Colosseum. They instituted prison reforms, because the prison was the Colosseum, they died in there. Uh, later outlawing human sacrifice and polygamy. Christians had a huge influence of the Magna Carta, the Declaration of Independence. Uh, Christians were on the front line in abolishing slavery in the Roman Empire. Then later on in Europe and the United States. And yes, there were a minority of Christians that were fighting for slavery, but it was the minority. Let no one tell you differently. In fact, the follower of Christ William Wilberforce he led the way to abolish slavery in England. It is not wrong to get involved with any subject as long as the gospel is first. And the worldview you're advocating is explicitly biblical. I saw even the last couple years people, they were talking about different worldviews and it was completely devoid of the Bible. It needs to be explicitly biblical. It's not wrong to get involved, to influence as long as what you're advocating is biblical and it doesn't overshadow your priority of sharing the gospel. If all you want is tax cuts, and that's all I hear from you, you never share the gospel. You're just sharing about, how, listen, I just got my property tax assessment. I'm mad, all right? I'm like, you gotta be kidding me, right? But that doesn't mean, like, I'm like, oh, that's all I'm gonna talk about now. Dear Jesus, I just pray my property tax goes down next year. And then he'll respond, Andy, I own the property taxes on a thousand hills. How many souls are you reaching? Bottom line is, we need to preach the gospel, invite people to church. We need to love those who disagree with us. We need to influence them to the heart. And then we need to ask God, what is our role in this conversation? What is our role? I'll tell you, I'll just tell you two of the areas that I'm really uh, passionate about. There's three of them. I don't have time today to share what God did, uh, but three of them, is religious liberty. I believe it is a wonderful, wonderful expression of the Lord that's being expressed in this country, and it's constantly under attack. It really is. Number two, uh, I... I'm really passionate about sobriety. And so, when I went to... Um, those are the political issues. Obviously, gospel first. And because um, I... I I did my first started a new ministry in the inner city in Chicago. And 80% of what I faced was fatherlessness and sobriety. One of my students, eight years old, was running drugs for his mom, who was a prostitute during the night. And so I remember there was one time in 2015, it was when uh, the Supreme Court redefined marriage. And again, we talked about this last week. The, court, the governments can't redefine something God has made. They're only to recognize it, but they redefined it. That's a different story for a different day. And I was in a van in Alaska, driving in the middle of the night to the Arctic Ocean. We like camping, crazy places, okay? And I cried out to God and said, God, I'll do anything. I'll do anything you want. Here I am. Three years later, I got an invitation to the White House. And my message to the president was this. Sobriety, I'm very concerned about the legalization of marijuana across this country. It's it's ra- people are like oh it's no big deal I've been to Denver I do things in Denver every every year like three or four times a year every year it's progressively worse uh, the youth pastors are talking about how it's ravaging their youth groups and when you say that we're saying that out of complete either lies or we're saying it completely out of not knowing what we're talking about alright sobriety but I was able to share the, how it's ravaging students and then I was able to share the importance of religious liberty I was invited by somebody just on I say hey how would you like to go in the White House in two days I'm like And and you can ask whatever you want to the president. And so we were able to write all our things out. I wasn't able to meet the president. I wasn't able to meet all his cabinet. I was able to write what I wanted out. I submitted it, sat in this room in the Eisenhower office across from the West Wing. And uh, and when I was done after the two-hour meeting, got back in a car, flew home, and said, what in the world, Lord? And then he reminded me. Remember what you prayed three years ago. God will get you involved with different things bottom line is we need to preach the gospel invite people to church we need to love those who disagree with us and we need to influence and go for the heart if you're missing the gospel as a follower of christ you have it backwards you have it backwards you're not the final authority god is the final authority third question when is it right to disobey the government oh this is where we wanted to start right when was it right? Did, okay, I got to submit to the government. All right, all right, all right. Come on. When, when can I just disobey? Right. A question has been asked. That is asked: Is should a follower of Christ ever rebel against the government? Ooh, Facebook's listening right now. <laughs> we could get a strike. No, we won't. Wayne Grudem says this: God does not hold people responsible to obey the civil government. When obedience would mean directly disobeying a, a command of God himself. Okay? What he's saying here is this. If they explicitly say you can't do certain things in your faith, they're wrong and you continue to do that. That doesn't mean you go belligerent. That doesn't mean you go ballistic. That doesn't mean you go to the convenience store and tear down uh, all, the, all the, uh, the candy aisles, right? It doesn't mean you do all of that. You've probably seen that on, on YouTube, right? And so it's just like you don't do any of that. You just keep going. And you keep on being a follower of Christ and let the consequences fall where they may. Thankfully, we haven't been there yet. But in the third world and other countries, they're there right now. So practically speaking, here are a few examples when we were to disobey the government. Oh man, this sounds weird, okay? Number one, it's it's extreme cases. And again, it's always done in gentleness and humility. And um, here in the United States, we're blessed, okay? But there's people all around the world that this is being violated this morning. Number one, when you can no longer assemble as a church. Uh Uh-oh, wait a minute. Did that just happen? If the government won't let you meet together, it is the church's responsibility to figure out why they are prohibiting and decide the best method to continue meeting together as a church. So in China specifically... You can only meet together in public as an evangelical church if you are state-sponsored. And the state-sponsored uh, doctrines are bad, okay? So guess what people do? They still meet. They meet in their homes. They meet in you know the back of a furniture store. They'll meet in different places. It's called the underground church. And every week they are at risk of being imprisoned, uh, put in work camps, or killed. And they punish your family as well. Now, I realize the first thing you're probably thinking of and not meeting together was probably what the whole world just went through about two years ago during the pandemic when most churches were shut down in person by the order of a government. Let me tell you this. We, like almost every church in Kenosha, quit meeting in person in 2020. And in that time, we made the best decision with the information that we had. But when you put your hindsight glasses on the 2020, you look back, was that a good idea? You can disagree with me. This isn't a, this isn't an issue of the resurrection or not. But I think we made a mistake. Can I say that? I think we look back and say, whoa, what was that all about? Right? And so if it's the same circumstances in the future, I don't see us closing. Now, if it's Ebola and people are dropping off right and left, maybe we'll change our mind. All right? The early church was illegal, and they were not supposed to meet, but they kept meeting. But yet they were good citizens. Uh, they obeyed uh, They obeyed the other laws so that uh, they can make sure they had the margin uh, to do what was most important. And by the way, I would say one of the things that really happened together as a church when we were in 2020 uh, is that... We were, our online, God knew what he was doing, The online capacities were put into place then, and now we're reaching thousands a week online. So, uh, God knows what he's doing. And together, meeting as a church is this. It needs to be, a, it, it, again, together, a committed group of people together, under leadership, that is gospel-centric, and that is biblical. So, when the government says you can no longer assemble. Number two is, when you can no longer praise... Three, when it's illegal to own or speak about the Bible and its teachings. Four, when you can't spread the gospel in public. I've been in a number of countries where that is that is true. And by the way, just because at school you can't disrupt a class and start preaching the gospel, don't do that. All right? But that doesn't mean that you can't have a conversation with a friend in the hallway. Same with the workplace. You're in a work project in a meeting and all of a sudden you hijack it and you start preaching everybody. You're probably going to get fired. Not because you're preaching the gospel, but because you're not doing your job. Right? And so preach the gospel, but let's use our head, right? Let's not be belligerent. Uh, let's, 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 with grace and mercy, share the gospel anywhere and everywhere. And finally, when you're forced to violate your biblical convictions by the state. There is biblical precedent for this. The biblical precedent uh, for saying no to the government when it comes to saying no to the things of Jesus to you, uh, I would say is Daniel chapter 3. Uh, This is, in Daniel chapter 3, we have three Hebrews, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who refused to worship and bow to the false gods of Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon. Let me read this to you, Daniel chapter 3. Then in a furious rage, Nebuchadnezzar gave orders to bring Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego and so these men were brought before the king, and Nebuchadnezzar asked them, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, is it true that you don't serve my gods or worship the gold statue I've set up? Now, if you're ready, when you hear the sound of the horn, the flute, the, the, the zither, the lyre, the harp, the drum, and every kind of music, fall down and worship the statue I made. But if you don't worship it, you'll immediately be thrown into the furnace of blazing fire. And who is the God who can rescue you from my power? And Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego replied to the king, Nebuchadnezzar, we don't need to give you an answer to this question. If the God who serves exists, then he can rescue us from the furnace of the blazing fire. They said, I know what your law is. We're not going to worship some false god, and we're not going to stop worshiping the real god. So you know what? We're going to keep doing what we're going to do, and then... In the end, we're going to let the consequence fall where it may. They weren't belligerent. They weren't like, look at us. They were humble. They were quiet. They were worshiping their God. And they met the furnace. And God saved them from the furnace. Depen- depending on the country and the time, there may be large consequences to not obey the government when they say you can't do this with the Lord. What would you have done if you're in the place of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego? Is my fear that many of us care more about what society says or what people think about us than what God says. Paul told the Corinthians, therefore, we are ambassadors of Christ since God is making his appeal through us. We plead on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. He made the one who did not know sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. And as we land today, last point, what does it mean to be a good neighbor in our city? What does it mean? If we're to be a citizen and involved, listen, gospel first, humility, right? Long-suffering and patience with those that are diametrically even opposed to you. What does it mean to be a good neighbor? We've heard this. You know, we just wanna be good neighbors in society. People are overusing this phrase to mean nothing. This is what they mean by this phrase. Uh, You need to do, fill in the blank, to be a good neighbor, right? It's almost like someone saying something that, hey, I know I'm gonna say something you're gonna disagree with, but I'm gonna add this tagline at the end to be a good neighbor, and now you can't disagree with me. Right? And the Christian world is like this. Well, I'm going to do something. Why? Because God told me. I'm like, Ugh, great. I can't even tell him now. He's like, are you sure it's God or not your bowl of Fruit loop. So what is it? And God may have told him that, but we often use the God card or we often use the tagline or the hashtag card to where people can't engage with us any longer. What does it mean to be a good neighbor? It means this, that love never stops for people. No matter who your neighbor is. Romans thirteen eight. Paul goes on after talking about the government and the IRS and all that. He says, do not owe anything, anyone anything except to love one another. For the one who loves another has fulfilled the law. Love never fails. It never ends. It remains. But we need love in truth. Love doesn't stand by itself when we make it whatever we want or feeling or this is me or this is whatever it is. No, no, no. Love is truth, Romans 13, 9. The commandments, do not commit adultery, do not murder, do not steal, do not covet, and any other commandment are summed up by this commandment. Love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no wrong to a neighbor. Love, therefore, is the fulfillment of the law. What what. Paul is saying to the Roman church is this, you need to love, love never ends, but you need to love in truth. Well, what is truth? And he goes back to the 10 commandments. We are to love people in truth and that is why we need to be gospel first people, but that is why also we need to speak truth in everything. Why? Because truth sets you free. You are not the final authority God is your final authority. So here's our take home. We're going to ask the spirit of God uh, to just really meet with us right now. Here's our take home. And it deals with this. He's telling us to submit and surrender to the government. Well, listen, here's the deal. It's because ultimately we want to submit to Christ. We need to surrender to Christ. Christ is our leader. Christ is the leader of this church. Christ is the leader of our life. Christ is Lord. We need to surrender to him. Number two, we need to surrender to his mission. His mission isn't just for somebody else, it's for you. Uh, number three, we need to surrender to the Holy Spirit. That means the things we like to be in control of, listen, Holy Spirit, will you come now? He's already here. He's already in you if you've given your life and your life to Christ. But listen, Holy Spirit, will I yield to you? Will you fill me to the overflow? Will I walk where you're going? Number four. Surrender your control. Surrender, 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 surrender. So, Heavenly Father, we pray that right now. That we would surrender. We'd surrender our entire lives to you. That the belligerence that might be in our life towards something, that we'd surrender that. That the sin that might be in our life, that we'd surrender that. That, God, that... The areas that we are just complacent with you, that we'd surrender that. The areas that we have fear, that we'd surrender that. God, the areas that that are just living in our head rent free, we'd surrender that. All of it be surrendered to you. As we continue to pray, if there's anybody in this room right now and you've never surrendered your life to Jesus Christ, meaning this, you haven't placed your faith and trust in him alone, this is your moment. Have you personally asked Jesus Christ to be your Savior? Have you personally placed your faith and trust on him alone? Have you personally asked Jesus to save you from your sins? If the answer is I don't know or no, then the answer is no, you haven't. Right now is your time to say yes to Jesus. Say yes to Jesus right now by saying, Jesus, I believe in you. I want to place my faith and trust in you alone. I believe that you died on the cross to save me from my sins. You stood in my place and I believe that you rose from the dead. The Bible says this. If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God rose from the dead, you will be saved. All those who cry on the name of the Lord will be saved. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him shall not perish spiritually but have everlasting life. Place your faith in him right now. Believe in him right now. Believe in him and receive him right now. In fact, with every heads bowed and eyes closed, if this morning you're saying yes to Jesus, will you just slip up your hand right now? Say, yeah, it's me. I'm saying yes to Jesus. Awesome, I see you. Anybody else? Just raise the hand up high. This, raising your hand doesn't save you. It's just indicating to me what God's doing in your heart. Awesome, I see you. Anybody else? Anybody else? Awesome, Lord Jesus, I just pray that you'd be with those that are saying yes to you right now. Lord, I pray that you'd be with everybody in this room now, that you would move their heart to surrender, to surrender. We love you, Lord, and we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks again for listening to this week's episode. If you would like to know more about Kenosha City Church, then check us out online at kenosha.church or on Facebook, Instagram, and YouTube at Kenosha City Church. Lastly, if you enjoyed this episode, we encourage you to follow us so that you never have to miss an episode. At Kenosha City Church, we are not perfect people, but real people being made new through Jesus.